the thing is, I said I'll bring Vermont values to it, and I have. I, I mean, I've done a lot for Vermont, but I've done a lot uh, nationwide and worldwide. The Reflex Vermont, the Freedom of Information Act, I've always done that. Uh, uh, renewed that each time, and I've always gotten Republican support for it, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. On Tuesday, Senator Patrick Leahy ended his remarkable 48-year career as the senator from Vermont. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we spend the hour with Senator Leahy in his first interview as a former senator. Leahy was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1974 at the age of 34. He is now 82. He was the first Democrat elected to Congress from Vermont, and until the election of Senator Peter Welch last November, he was the only Democratic senator from Vermont since Senator Bernie Sanders is an independent. Leahy was also the last of the Senate's Watergate babies who were elected in the wake of President Nixon's resignation over the Watergate scandal. Leahy is the third longest-serving U.S. Senator in American history. He has served with nine presidents. He has cast over 17,000 votes as a senator. As a key member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Leahy has participated in some 18 Supreme Court confirmation hearings. His memoir, The Road Taken, was published last year. Senator Patrick Leahy, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Well, I'm always glad to be at it. This is, it makes me feel like I'm back home. <laughs> well, um, this is a special day. This is your first day in 48 years as a former senator. How does it feel? Uh, relief in one way, but also... I, a sense of, uh, I don't want to say joy or, or awe that I had the opportunity to be there that long. I mean, nobody thought I'd get elected the first time. And to be there as long as I was and then be able to leave on my own accord, uh, that's that's a privilege. And and I don't take it lightly. I, I think... My fellow Vermonters that gave me that privilege, and I will look back at it for the rest of my life as a wonderful part of life, even with the ups and downs that go with a sometimes fractured uh, Congress. Tell us about yesterday when you gaveled the Senate uh, in for a final time and you walked Peter Welch into the Senate chamber. I first came in and gaveled the end of uh, last year's session, which had ended with the last vote being my omnibus appropriations. And so I gaveled into an end and had a number of senators come over, Republicans and Democrats, and just wanted to shake hands. And then to walk Peter down, was was quite a thrill because I remember the first time I was sworn in, uh, Senator Stafford, Bob Stafford, who was Mr. Republican in, in Vermont, 
walks me down arm in arm and I'm saying, thank you, Senator. He said, I think you should call me Bob. <laughs> and, uh, and he was he was such a mentor and he was so wonderful. And now here's Peter who comes in with the legislative experience. I mean, I, I came in in uh, before noon. I was still state's attorney of Chittenden County. And just before I walked down the aisle, I resigned as that. And now I'm suddenly in the U.S. Senate. And it, but Peter's had the wonderful experience of being in the House and a significant person in the House. And uh, he's been expected and anticipated and welcomed by Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. So I, he comes he comes in knowing the legislative process uh, better than I, I did, and I'm just so proud of him. And I was so proud that he asked me to walk him down the aisle. In fact, I walked two people down yesterday. One, the second one, was Patty Murray of, of Washington State, who became the first woman to be president pro tem of the U.S. Senate and third in line to the presidency. And she asked me if I would walk her down as the outgoing president pro tem. And that that was a thrill because I really admire her, and she's going to take my place as chair of the Appropriations Committee, and it would be good to have somebody with her experience there. Let, let me ask you about, uh, you know, while we're on the topic of yesterday, another historic event happened yesterday was the failure to elect a House Speaker for the first time in a century what does that signify to you about the state of the institutions that you served? Well, it, I worry. Uh, I worry that there's been a steady decline. I, I look at uh, the Republicans in the House who spent their whole campaign attacking Nancy Pelosi as she got piece of legislation after piece of legislation through, and then even the last... A uh, few days of her time as Speaker arranged to have President Zelensky come over on a, a secret trip to the U.S. to a, address a, a meeting of the House and Senate, and to enormous applause. I looked at the face of the uh, people who had been attacking her from the other side, and they're just looking like, my God, we could never do this. And now I think they realize it. Uh, they they were dealing with rhetoric. She was dealing with reality. And she got things done. I worked closely with her on the omnibus. Uh, we brought it up only when she told us they had enough votes to pass it in the House. And then we moved it very, very quickly. And as President Pro Tem, when I signed this, well over a thousand page document so it could go to the president for his signature I was thinking it was remarkable and this group coming in could never do that they'd be split apart the country would suffer we'd lose billions of dollars I think that what's happened you have people who deal in rhetoric and not reality they seem to want to have talking points to get on the evening news or the latest uh, 
uh, Twitter feed and not worry about what is substantive. And and that's coming to roost now with a, uh, I mean, we're looking like totally uh, uncoordinated to the rest of the world. I'm hearing from friends around the world who say, what the heck is going on? I, I mean, it's bad enough uh, January 6th, uh, the number of emails and calls I got from parliamentarians I've worked with in other countries saying, what, what is happening to America? And now this uh, it is hurting the United States. It's hurting our sense of democracy. When you have people from the former president on say, well, maybe we should just suspend a few of these parts of the Constitution because they're inconvenient for what we want to do. <laughs> they weren't made to be convenient. They're made to hold a country together. And I, I fear for the country if it continues like this. What um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your work um, on the Judiciary Committee and judges. You oversaw numerous hearings for Supreme Court judges. Do you recall exactly how many uh, Supreme Court uh, judge confirmations, you were justice confirmations, you oversaw or were part of? Uh, I was uh, here for every uh, Supreme Court justice since uh, Gerald Ford. Hmm. And uh, I voted on everybody's on the Supreme Court. And I've actually voted on more Supreme Court judges than anybody serving in the in the Senate. And I have become very concerned that they've become so politicized. Uh, and in fact, judgeships overall, the uh, majority of Republicans right now in the Senate Judiciary Committee have voted against about 90-95% of women who have been nominated to any of the courts, the federal courts, district or courts of appeals or um, the Supreme Court. And this this is hurting the courts. It's, the judges are getting through, but it's hurting the courts is hurting their uh, objectivity. I, I tried a lot of cases when I was a young lawyer and then when I was state's attorney in both federal courts and uh, courts of appeals. Even had one that went to the Supreme Court, but wanted on motions. And But in no case did I think, well, I don't want to go before this judge because they're politically this way or that way. You just assume they're going to be impartial. Now, the credibility is failing when you have Supreme Court judges like Alito taking political positions, speaking to political gatherings, and carrying on the way they do. It, it is hurting the courts. It's hurting the country. Do you believe there should be some limitations uh, on the judge uh, on the court? Should it be expanded? Should there be term limits? There have been a variety of suggestions made about how to address this issue. The the idea of 
term limits is something I never would have considered before. Now I would I would consider it. I don't think we need to expand the uh, Supreme Court, but we've got to have one that has a sense of how they do things. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was at Georgetown Law School, we had uh, a group that if you were in the uh, top fifth of your class, you were invited to it, or top 5%, I forgot which it was. And anyway, we were going to have a, I was a member of that, we were going to have a luncheon for the Supreme Court, and the Chief Justice, Earl Warren, wanted the judges, the justices to sit at separate tables with their, with their, uh, the students. We drew the tables at lot. We got Hugo Black, and I thought, oh, my God, here's this former segregationist. Well, it was one of the most exciting things that happened. He talked about going to Vermont, uh, and he had no idea who was going to be picked at his table. He had campaigned uh, in Vermont, even though it was all a poison justice. Franklin Roosevelt sent him up there. He talked about being at Hotel Vermont. He told me who was on the ballot and what the numbers were. I went to the Library of Congress the next day, and he was right. But the thing that really impressed me, he told me how the Chief Justice took two and a half years to bring forward the decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which ended segregation. Uh, basically, certainly for the for schools. The reason he took two and a half years, he had eight of the justices on his side, one opposed, who was in ill health. He waited until he died, and they got a new justice in, and then he wanted to have a, a unanimous decision. You can't imagine a decision different than that today. But because it was going to end segregation in the way it did, he thought if the Supreme Court was not unanimous, the American public would not accept it, and President Eisenhower would have trouble with it. Now, that's a bit of history which may seem awfully obscure today, but how important that was. Because when you have a deeply divided Supreme Court making uh, decisions that they've, that some of their members have given political speeches about, then you lose credibility in the court, whichever way it goes. And that's going to hurt the country. You struggled over the whether to approve uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, whether to vote for him um, and approve his nomination. And many Democrats criticized you for it. Now that you've seen Chief Justice Roberts in action, would you vote for him again? If that was the choice before us, I probably would, uh, because I think that he has kept them from doing even worse things. But obviously, if it was, if he is not the person that uh, Joe Biden would nominate. We wouldn't have had that question. We would have had somebody like Merrick Garland or somebody like that. Uh, which would have been far more to my uh, my likings. But interestingly enough, when I got criticized by for voting for um, 
John Roberts, and I, uh, I knew him as a brilliant jurist, and even though I disagreed philosophically on things, I didn't want the Chief Justice to be confirmed on a party line vote. I knew he was going to be confirmed, but I didn't want it to be party line, and I thought it hurt the court. After I, I gave the criticism, a new uh, senator who was voting against John Roberts went to the Senate floor and gave a powerful speech saying I shouldn't be criticized. I'm a man of integrity and honesty, and I had good reasons for the way I did, and I should be respected for him. I didn't know he was going to give that speech. And I went to his office afterward, and I said, Barack Obama, I want to thank you for that. And we became very good friends from that point on. What did you see in a young Barack Obama who really had a meteoric rise? He goes from the Illinois State Senate to the U.S. Senate. What did you see in him when he first arrived in the Senate? And did you imagine the career trajectory that he went on to have? I'm not surprised by the career uh, trajectory. We, they usually have a spouse of a senator will uh, offer to help the spouse of an incoming senator to, to learn the rules and customs and all. And my wife, Marcel, was assigned to Michelle Obama. And they they used to joke they were they were sisters. Now, Michelle Obama is considerably taller than uh, Marcel, plus the other obvious differences. And they would get they would go and do things together, and Michelle would say, and this is my sister, Marcel, and everybody would, of course, love it. And uh, and I, especially at that first part, I got to know Barack Obama better. We used to work out together in the gym. I hastily add that he's in far better shape than I, but he is younger by some <laughs> 20 years but we would we would trash talk each other and we we would be laughing so hard as we walked out with our arms around each other and teasing he he teased me about my sneakers I teased him about being late for our meeting at the gym because he probably had to stop for for the press and but then we would sit down and talk about pieces of legislation coming up. And no matter what it was, he had studied it very thoroughly. Uh, he, his, he missed his family, his young daughters, because they were most of the time back in, uh, in Chicago. And we just got along well. In fact, when after he had lost New Hampshire and I'd stayed neutral, uh, who's going to uh, for who, who's support for president? And, and Marcel and I were down at the Easter break. We were down scuba diving, and I said, "You know, I I like Barack. I feel I feel closest to him. I'm going to call him and tell him I'll support him." So I did, and uh, he was very appreciative. He said, "Now, where are you?" And I said, well, Marcel and I, are, I'm actually on a boat where we're down in scuba diving. And uh, he as I put Marcel on the speakerphone. He said, look, Marcel, tell him 
put sunscreen on that bald head of his. I don't want him campaigning for me with a sunburn. I mean, we had that kind of relationship. I said, you know, the more I think about it, I do have John McCain's phone number. I think I'm going to support him. And, and But it was that kind of a relationship. We're just laughing, laughing our heads off. And, uh, and it's kept that, kept that relationship. And, uh, I, I thought the, well, I thought the world of him and he did get a kick out of my grandson. Uh, one of my grandsons, Patrick, would explain to him that he was the real Patrick and I was the pretend Patrick. <laughs> and, and, and he, he likes Patrick because as he said, you know, he's just like me. He has a black father and a white mother, my, my daughter. And uh, But the difference is he has a father who's there all the time. And he and our son-in-law are very good friends. They've been um, one of his photographers, hmm. and uh, Lawrence Jackson. And so there was that relationship. And... You know, a similar one with uh, with President Biden, because when I came to the Senate, we were the two youngest members of the Senate, and, uh, and two of the most junior, and people told us because of our age and coming from small states, we'd probably never amount to much of anything, But uh, and we've been good friends ever since. But then we've had, I've been there in the Senate where you could... Republicans and Democrats would meet together with whoever was president to try to work things out. Uh, I've been there with, you know, president since uh, President Ford, and I felt all of them except one were qualified. And you could sit down and talk to them. If you disagreed with something, you could say, here, I want to tell you why I disagree and maybe you'd agree, and maybe you wouldn't. Afterward, the one exception, of course, was Donald Trump, who had no idea what what he was talking about. Uh, and would say, can't, can't we set aside part of the Constitution for a while? Good Lord. You served under nine presidents, um, from Ford to Biden. Who do you think was the most consequential and had the greatest impact? I'll make only one exception to that. I've not served under any president. Uh, the the uh, Congress is independent branch of government. I served with uh, nine presidents. Okay, I stand corrected. Now, I think some ways inconsequential would probably be Trump because of all the things he did that we're still paying the price for. Uh, his uh, going... I'll give you an example of how you can do it the wrong way and the right way. He would go to NATO meetings and just deride the other NATO countries and say, you know, we're paying for all this, you should do what we want, blah, blah, blah. And they'd push them aside to get in the front row for uh, uh, photographs and on and treated them with disdain and then I, I I remember going to a meeting with uh, NATO 
shortly after we were putting together the coalition with Ukraine, I had every single NATO member, some were, were heads of state, others were their delegates, tell me that they came together because of Joe Biden. They never would have come together on Ukraine or anything else with Trump because he had no idea what was going on, and he would uh, uh, they'd be afraid he'd change his mind two minutes after they committed to something. But they said Biden, instead of what he would do, he would talk with them privately, sometimes for hours. In fact, he spent over 100 hours in talking with all of them. And then let them announce what they were doing, and then he would applaud them rather than say, make it look like he had ordered them to do this. But he brought um, NATO together in a way it had not been for a generation. And then you had countries like Finland said, oh, we don't want to be neutral anymore, even though we're right on the border of uh, Russia. We want to join NATO. And they pointed that out as a difference between what a president can do and not do. And so I, I think in that way, uh, Joe Biden was very consequential. But others were, too. Uh, president George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, when I wanted to start the use the uh, Leahy War Victims Fund in Vietnam, and we didn't even have full relations there yet. And I went down to see uh, President Bush and Secretary uh, State Jim Baker. And I said, I want to bring this, use it through the Vietnam Veterans of America, put the money through them, because obviously we didn't even have relations with Vietnam in such a way that we'd send them any uh, foreign aid. We sent it to them to help, especially landmine victims in Vietnam. Now, President Bush had been in the military. He said, I think it's a good idea. President Baker, I mean, uh, Secretary Baker said he did too, but I point out to them there is a, one of the assistant secretaries in the State Department is opposed to it. Uh, President Bush turns and Baker says, Jimmy, I've never heard him called that before, he says, Jimmy, get him on the phone. He gets this poor guy on the speakerphone. He has no way of knowing that uh, the president and I are sitting there. And he's asked about using the Leahy War Victims Fund in Vietnam. And he said, oh, um, you know, certainly he wants to do that, but it's a terrible idea, Mr. Secretary. And so I got somebody here who thinks it's a great idea. Bush comes on the phone. You hear this poor guy do a complete <laughs> U-turn. But I brought it there. And it turned out to be the biggest step forward to our getting our relationship. I told him about lifting a man who just stared at me. I brought a bipartisan delegation with me as senators, but this man when I was being introduced, no legs, um, and I was pointed out as a person, it's the Leahy War Victims Fund, and so on. And he's just looking at me, and I thought, God, he must hate me. And they asked me to pick him up and put him in his wheelchair. And he probably weighed about 60 pounds or so with no legs. And I did, and I started to stand up, and he grabbed my shirt, he pulled me down, and he kissed me. 
Now, there are certain moments in life you never forget. That was one. The same thing happened to John Glenn, who was there. Senator Glenn was not an emotional person. He had tears coming down his face. And when I told President Bush that, he choked up too. But anyway, we went the near step to step to step. We now have far fuller uh, relations. In fact, this past, except for the injuries I had from a fall last um, summer, I was supposed to go back leading a delegation to Vietnam where they were going to have a meeting of the parliament to honor me for what I've, I've done with them. But I've urged other senators to do such things next year. Hmm. And I think there will be some that will. And, uh, but it was, you know, I opposed the war. I'm the only Vermonter who ever voted against the war to stop the war. And I felt strongly about it. And I felt, I've, because I felt strongly about it, I've got to carry through and do something on it. And I think it's helped make a difference. That and a whole lot of other people have worked so hard on building relations there. Senator Leahy, you know the Cheney family well. Uh, one of the most famous and colorful anecdotes from your career was being sworn at by then Vice President Dick Cheney on the Senate <laughs> floor. <laughs> so, um, and, and he, Cheney was a guy who, you know, many people felt was stretching and breaking the limits of constitutional powers that a president should have. So how surprised are you that Liz Cheney, with her father's blessing, has led the charge against former President Trump? I was surprised initially, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, uh, <clears throat> well, I became less surprised because Cheney, yes, we had a lot of disagreements. We, we got along all right, but uh, except for that one time, and and I did have a T-shirt that says it's better to be sworn in than sworn at. As I got, got reelected, overwhelmingly, uh, another one said, "Noy Cheney, vote Leahy," but uh, I, I think that he saw Trump as going so far beyond any question of of relevancy or what the presidency should be, and just when you get, uh, they started running a number. When he reached a thousand falsehoods, and then two thousand, and three thousand, and um, I think it was a case first of Liz Cheney being opposed and her uh, her father supporting uh, supporting her. Incidentally, uh, give you an idea of our relationships, things come and go. The you recall he had been on a hunting trip in Texas, and he'd shot a friend of his, yes. his birdshot in the face. Well, I'd been down, our son is a pilot, we'd been down in El Paso to, to visit him over the weekend, and I'd gone out running on the on the desert, and I tripped, and I fell, and I just scraped the heck out of my my face. Two days later, we're having a joint meeting of Congress, and so... 
I was going to be walking over with Cheney. He looks at my scraped face. He said, Pat, what happened to you? And I said, well, Dick, over the weekend I was in Texas. He said, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, everybody cracked up. And and that was sort of like, okay, we've signed a peace accord. <laughs> and, uh, and, in fact, when um, President Bush was lying in state um, uh, at the Capitol, and Dick Cheney and I had been in there paying our respect to the, the coffin and walking out together and just obviously having an amiable conversation. We were talking about different things we'd done, and one of his favorite photographs was one I took of him at, at the uh, inauguration, and and... I think what somebody said, that's unusual. You're getting along well. I said, you've got to understand, in the, in the Congress, of course we'll have times we disagree. But then there's another issue tomorrow. And uh, stick to your points that you, you agree, in, agree with, but make sure you put the country ahead of everything else. But, you know, for people who don't recall, Vice President Cheney was often seen as the mastermind of Bush's so-called, you know, well, the torture program uh, after 9-11. So many people felt that no one had done more to stretch and tear, you know, the, the constitutional rights than Cheney had. And then to see him stepping forward to, you know, back his daughter as she took on Trump at essentially the cost of her political career that, um, I mean, who knows what her next move is, but, uh, obviously she was done as an elected representative. Um, so going from the vice president who oversaw or advocated torture to a guy opposing Trump, what does that say to you? Well, you know, I, I I was taught in catechism class that there's always redemption as a child. And I think, well, maybe there is, because it obviously is a change with uh, with Cheney. And it's one that I wish it had been before. The torture program was wrong. As you know, I every time we had legislation opposing that, I voted to oppose it. I've held hearings opposing it. Uh, the the Leahy law uh, cuts off aid to countries, even allies, that are using torture, and that's been a force uh, worldwide, and uh, even to getting some glares from some heads of state when I'm visiting their country because of the Leahy law. But it, I feel it reflects our values as a country, and those who are supporting torture um, devalue it. I mean, I, uh, as we mentioned earlier, I was the only Vermonter who, even if we'd had Vermonters who've been critical of the war in Vietnam, I'm the only one that voted to end it. And that vote 
was in armed services, and the vote to end it was carried by a one-vote one margin. I had five votes in a row. Each time I voted against it. And I do recall one of, one of our newspapers in Vermont saying that I would be a one-term one senator because of that. And not that I remember that eight terms ago, but the... Um, <laughs> But then on the war in Iraq, you know, they were drumming up, and this, I think, was really bad, uh, and Cheney was certainly part of this. Uh, the war in Iraq, well, Saddam Hussein's got uh, nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, we must go after him, and his involvement with... Uh, 9-11, of course, he, he had no weapons of mass destruction. He wasn't involved in uh, all, all the people who were on the planes and all were almost all of them Saudi Arabians. Osama bin Laden was a, a Saudi, but they were determined to go to war with Iraq, which was a huge mistake. And I went to all the briefings, the open briefings and the classified briefings. I even point out in my book when I was raising questions, uh, when Marcel and I were out walking early one morning in McLean, two joggers we'd never seen before in this area came up and, you know, good morning, Senator, good morning, Mrs. Leahy, uh, what did you think of the briefing yesterday? And, and I said, well, I... I couldn't talk about the briefing. It was in, it was a, a secret briefing. Understood. But did they tell you about file number eight, using a cold word? I, I didn't respond. They said, I think you'd like to read file number eight. Well, I went back and <clears throat> called the intelligence people, the administration, and got file number eight. Again, I'm just using a, not the real name of it, and read it, and it, disputed much of what Cheney and others were saying. And so I was kind of muttering about that. We're out walking a day later. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, Mrs. Leahy. Uh, we understand you've read file number eight. I said, well, I, I, I can't respond to that. Understood. But did they show you file number 12? Again, you see a code word. <laughs> I think you could see by the look on my face. That, no, I hadn't. He said, you may want to look at that. So I went back and got that, and I told my office I'm going to come out against going to war there uh, next week. We put together some notes. Marcel and I had gone to church on Sunday. We're out walking uh, in McLean, seeing a couple of cars go by with antennas, and then two big SUVs pull up, bristling with antennas. Window goes down. It's a member of the uh, uh, president's inner circle. Hi, Pat. Hi, Marcel. Hello. Uh, could I talk with you, Pat? So all the security people and everybody get out of the car. Marcel just could. We're about a mile or so from home. Continue walking. And he said, I understand you've read file 8 and 12. And I said, I have. And, and of course, he would know these because... He had access to him, and he said, you, <clears throat> you still going to vote against the war? 
I said, absolutely. I don't think the administration has been truthful. He said, well, can we still be friends? I said, yes, but I want to vote against war. And I started to get out of the car. He said, we'll give you a ride home. I said, well, let me tell you where I live. We know where you live. (laughs) (laughs) So who who were these joggers? Who do you think they were? Uh, who, who knows? Uh, but uh, uh, I never saw them again. And we're we're a neighborhood of a lot of. It's a, there's only one one way in and out. The neighborhood goes all over the place with cul-de-sacs and all. You can jog for several miles in it, but there's only one way in and out. I've never seen these joggers again. Tell me a little bit of that. I do. I do remember the. We know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> How did January sixth change you? Well, a number of things happened that day. Um, we had, they had finished the voting in Georgia, and. I was going to be president pro tem again, and I told myself, I, I don't need that security. You know, it, nice to give me a ride to work, but I don't need security all the time. And which comes because you're third in line to the presidency. And one day I got a text from Marcel where they were being rushed to. Uh, we were being rushed to a secure room with guys with machine guns and everything else. And she said, what did you say about security when I woke you up this morning? I said, you sure that was me? Uh, but the thing, and I was just trying to be, take it, take it lightly, but as I saw, armed police officers with, with machine guns coming on the Senate floor, the vice president being yanked out of the uh, uh, chair. We're going, we're being brought down a, a back way to the secure room. I could, you could hear the noise. And then when we got to the secure room and we got, there's a large meeting room, and we got uh, television sets in there, and we started to see what was going on. I mean, I had an office in the Capitol right next to the Speaker's office, and I could see people going by the door of my office with hammers and and um, pats and everything else heading to the Speaker's office right next door, smashing things. And it was really hitting me what's happening. And it came, and I was just getting furious. Uh, I respect the Congress, I respect our government, I respect our laws, and to see this and people shouting, well, we have a constitutional right to be here. They've never read the Constitution. They don't even know what the Constitution is. And Trump has sent us and these things. And I was just getting very angry. And then somebody pointed out that as they said it, we can vote anywhere. We could go to a restaurant, if the majority of us voted to have the Senate meet there, that's where we'd meet. 
when somebody suggested, why don't we meet here in the secure room, uh, just vote for it. And I stood up and I got I, one of the few times I got angry in these things. And I said, no. I said, I'm the dean of the Senate. I'm the longest serving person here. I'm the president pro tem. And I'll be damned if I'm going to meet in secret. It may take us hours to clear the Senate chamber to have the bomb-sniffing dogs come through. But so what? So what if it takes hours? Let us go back where the American people can see what we're saying, how we're voting, what we're doing. Don't hide. And I got an amazing standing ovation from Republicans and Democrats. And a couple of senators who were going to give speeches opposing the uh, election uh, announced they're not going to give the speech after what they saw. And we went back and we were on the floor where I thought we should be, where we should be seen. I mean, since I've been in the Senate, there's only two times we've met outside the Senate chamber. One was to uh, inaugurate the old, the restored old Senate chamber. We went, voted to do that, just a pro forma meeting, then went back. The other was we met up in New York City after 9-11 just to show support for uh, New York. But um, there was never a time was more important for the American people to see what we were saying and who was saying it. Because I, I never imagined, I never imagined my lifetime I'd see something that we saw then. But what hurts even more is to hear people who know better, should know better, applauding what happened from Trump on down. I mean, this was a total violation of the law. It was a total uh, violation of the Constitution. It was something that will be uh, something that is going to harm our country for years to come that it should be roundly condemned by everybody, Republican or Democrat. I know I talked with uh, uh, with our, our governor, and uh, afterward he was asked, I mean, he obviously condemned it, and he's a Republican. Uh, we talked about, you know, what, what's happening? I had, a, I had people from other countries calling and saying, what is happening in America? How concerned are you that our system, our American democratic system, will hold? I am concerned. Um, the book I wrote, I, I wrote uh, partly to give um, some hope that we could be different. You know, I wrote this book, The Road Taken, but I talked about... Uh, what um, what it was like when I came there, not perfect by any means, but so much better, and how it's degenerated. And uh, I desperately hope it'll get better. I've said that in speeches. I urge that. Uh, I mean, Marcel and I had decided 
years ago this was going to be my last term, and I want to be able to leave at my own choice, and, and not because I wasn't reelected. And besides, I had a good person to follow. But um, I worry, and I've talked to a lot of senators who share that worry, and I said they've got to start speaking out about it. You were at a turning point in Vermont politics. You were the first Democrat elected to the U.S. Senate. You served alongside Jim Jeffords, who was the last Republican elected to Congress from Vermont. Can you imagine Republicans winning a congressional seat from Vermont in the foreseeable future? We have a Republican governor who's won overwhelmingly. Um, yes, I can. You know, when I ran, um, I mean, I'm glad to see a Democrat. Peter, Peter Welch becomes the second person elected as a Democrat to the Senate. We were the 14th um, state in the union. So, of course, one of the oldest. When I was elected, we were the only state that never elected a Democrat. And since the uh, election by popular vote, never elected anybody under 50, certainly wouldn't elect a Catholic. And I was told, okay, kid, you're... I was 33 when I announced, 34 by the time of the election. Uh, okay, kids, you can have the nomination. It's worthless. Well, uh, after I got elected, a number of people said, if I'd known it was that easy, I would have run. Well, they <laughs> didn't run, and it wasn't that easy. Uh, we, uh, Marcel and I went all over the state, uh, worked, you know, enormous hours, and I was still trying cases. As state's attorney, I I think I tried more cases than practically any law firm uh, during those years. And um, so I was doing both, but I wanted to be in the Senate, and it was a time of change. The, the uh, polls said the majority of Vermonters supported the war in Vietnam, minority opposed it. I opposed it. I made it very clear I opposed it. And I think a lot of people said, well, he's pretty honest about what he does, and it, we'll vote for him. And so it, um, you know, I'm glad I won. I was told to be a one, I'd be there only one term. And um, I've forgotten who it was who told me that. But uh, the the thing is, I said I'll bring Vermont values to it, and I have. I I mean I've done a lot for Vermont, but I've done a lot uh, nationwide and worldwide. The Reflex Vermont, the Freedom of Information Act. I've always done that. Uh, uh, renewed that each time, and I've always gotten Republican support for it. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the DNA, uh, the expansion of DNA evidence under the Innocence Protection Act. I expanded the Violence Against Women Act and got a strong Republican to support me. We added 
the LGBTQ community, uh, the sexual exploitation of children, and uh, Native Americans that hadn't been in there. And, and we added it and passed it. I mean, these are things I thought I was bringing Vermont uh, since uh, working with relations Vietnam. I felt that's what Vermont wanted, and, and it's worked. But the, obviously the things at home, adding uh, thousands upon thousands of acres of Green Mountain National Forest, what I've done with Lake Champlain, and so forth, um, when Tropical Storm Irene hit us, I made sure that uh, over $500 million was sent to Vermont to help us rebuild. And, of course, I um, got a billion and a half extra to Vermont for the uh, with COVID. And so I, I could take care of Vermont on a parochial thing, but I also wanted to do things at a national and international level. Uh, and each time, I've thought what I've gone for it. You know, if the predictors had been right, I never would have been in the Senate in the first place. Well, I'm here. There gives me certain obligations to take advantage of it. Don't sit back and be some of those who just don't um, uh, don't rock the boat. And it's uh, it's worked out well. I I, I leave with pride in, in what I've done. I've cast more votes than all but one person in history. I've actually served with 20% of the senators who have been elected in the history of this country. And now some are there only for uh, a few weeks. They were appointed as interim and so on. But I felt that gives me a responsibility to do what I think is right, and that's what I've tried to do. But i got to tell you, Marcel and I are looking forward to just coming home now. <laughs> well, Senator Leahy, I want to thank you for your service and for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Well, I'm, I'm glad you do these. Thank you very, very much. 